The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have tonight to study your word. We're grateful for it. We're grateful for the time of our life, O oh Lord, that you give us. Um, Lord, in you we live and move and have our being, and we acknowledge uh, that we owe everything to you. For the scripture says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And so, Lord, all these things come from you, including the time tonight. So I pray, Father, as we discuss the millennium, I pray that you'd be with me and uh, guard me from... Uh, from error or overstatement, um, help me, O oh Lord, to teach faithfully what's in the Scripture. And help all of us, O oh Lord, to understand the Word and to be able to apply it to our lives, to be more faithful in the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of advance of the kingdom of God through missions and evangelism. Lord, we thank you uh, for the Scripture and for its depth. I pray that you be with us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Um, Jack came up to me and said he remembered where we stopped last time, and it was at the handout where I have all the scripture references to the second coming of Christ. Well, I just gave that to you as a reference, but Jack wanted a careful exposition on each of those passages, so um, that would just postpone the inevitable, Jack. We have to get to the millennium at some point. I, I can't keep putting it off, so we'll go ahead and start uh, tonight. So those, those are great verses, and you can look at them, and each one of those texts bears careful attention, but I think it's time for us to look at the millennium. Uh, and so tonight we're going to talk about the millennium, and as we do, uh, just a, a brief refresher on what we're talking about. Uh, millennialism is the doctrine that Jesus Christ will reign physically on earth for a thousand years in fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, this reign will be characterized by a great improvement of conditions on earth, but less than the perfected world of the eternal state. So that's what the millennium is. The word literally means thousand years. It's a Latin um, uh, uh, word that comes over in the English. Uh, there's a Greek uh, form as well. It just means the same thing, thousand years. So right up, uh, up at the top, I want to give you a description of why I believe there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Now, those of you that know me know that I could go the other way, depending on whatever I read most recently. So I made sure that I read millennial stuff late this afternoon, and uh, I'm ready to go. Um, but... Uh, I, I, before I, I go into this, I just want you to know that there are some doctrines that are, are worth dying over. Uh, Martin Luther certainly felt that way about justification by faith apart from works of the law. He was willing to go to the stake for that, willing to die for it. We should be as well. I don't know that we would be uh, with his level of courage, but we should be willing to die for those kinds of doctrines. This is not one of them, friends. This, it, it certainly generates a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, but you know, you can see good brothers and sisters on both sides of this discussion. And the Lord will do what the Lord's going to do. And uh, those of us that go, uh, go through it, uh, we're talking about something wonderful compared to something even more wonderful. That's what we're discussing here. We're comparing uh, the millennium, the thousand years of Christ reigning physically on earth, to uh, the, skipping that and going right to the eternal state which is Christ reigning on earth and new heaven and new earth forever. Um, so that's something wonderful versus something even more wonderful. Now, the something even more wonderful the millennialists get as well. They get all, all of it. Um, but these are not bad things. Um, but uh, this is not a doctrine or what you call a hill on which to die. However, that doesn't mean it's not worth studying. 
doesn't mean it's not worth getting into the scriptures trying to understand it, and that's what we're going to do tonight. So it's not a waste of time to look at that. But I want to give you a sense of my own personal journey on this and, and why I've come to believe that Jesus will reign for a thousand years on earth. Now, first of all, um, this is right on page 2, which is the first printed page of the text after the great picture of the lion and lamb. Isn't that great? Uh, lying side by side. So thank God for skillful artists that can do something like that. But uh, for me, why I'm a millennialist, uh, number one, the millennial reign of Christ seems to be taught plainly in Revelation 20, 1 through 6. It is the burden of those who reject it to prove this passage is merely figurative. In other words, as you, re- as you read it, that's what it says. And so uh, there is figurative language in the Bible. There's figurative language definitely in the book of Revelation. What you have to do, though, is say the burden of proof is on those that say that this is figurative, that Jesus will not reign for a thousand years. Um, by the way, there are many that are gladly willing to take up that burden and, and, and prove uh, what they think. But uh, all I'm saying is the burden of proof is that it's uh, not literal. Secondly, there is, in my opinion, a, a seemingly chronological progression of events, in Revelation, especially in Revelation 19 through 22. I don't believe you can carry that through the whole book of Revelation, as I'll show you. But I do think it, it, it does work very well there. And again, as I'll show you, but there just seems to be a progression from Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. Those events just seem to lay out uh, in chronological order. And if that's the case, then you have the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, and then this thousand years. And then you have the, uh, the, the final judgment, the so-called great white throne judgment, and then you have the eternal state. So that seems to lay out uh, pretty well for me. Thirdly, the binding of Satan described in Revelation 20 goes far beyond the freedom Satan appears to have in the New Testament. In other words, if you look at uh, the uh, description of the binding of Satan in Revelation 20, it seems pretty much like he's locked down. I mean, he's bound with a great chain from an angel, and he's thrown into a bottomless pit, and the top of the pit is sealed um, so that he can't deceive the nations. And um, that doesn't fit very well with the freedom that it seems that the, that the devil has in the, in the New Testament era. Um, so if Jesus came and bound Satan, which is what the amillennialists say, that he bound him in his first coming, in which he did in some sense, uh, but if that's, if that's what happened, then how do you explain certain passages which describe Satan's freedom to move around and do various things? So um, I just don't think that's a good explanation of what happens in Revelation 20. And then there are some key passages in the Old Testament. Uh, I just preached on one, Isaiah 11, um, and there are some others that are really hard to explain if there's no millennial reign. They're just, they're, they just don't seem to fit anything. They don't seem to fit the present age or any time we've ever known in biblical history or redemptive history up to this point. So we haven't seen them up to this point. And uh, they don't seem to fit the eternal state either because there are certain elements in those prophecies that don't line up with what we understand of the eternal state. Uh, for example, uh, let's look at Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. It says there, The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the coat, uh, goat, sorry, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, um, there are different things you can do with that passage, um, but I don't think it can literally describe the experience in the eternal state. The reason being the word infant or the appearance of infants or young, young children. Um, again, there's a lot we don't know about the future. But Jesus did say this about the resurrection in Luke 20, uh, 34 through 36. It says, The people of this age marry and are given a marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, 
for they are like the angels. They are God's children, uh, since they are children of the resurrection. That's the Luke uh, passage, Luke 20, 34 through 36. So they don't procreate. In the eternal state, there, there doesn't seem to be any procreation. There's no marriage or giving in marriage. I know it says there's just marriage there, but that's the way we understand the way babies come, uh, you know, through marriage and in God's appointed way. And it just seems that there's, there, therefore, wouldn't be any infants or young children. Now, again, that's an assumption, you know, uh, that there wouldn't be any infants. Perhaps in some way, at the resurrection, there'll be some that would spend eternity as infants. I don't know why God would do that, um, but I just have a hard time fitting that scripture into the eternal state. I just don't, I don't see it that way. Concerning what it's going to be like at the resurrection, Augustine said we're all going to be 21 years old forever. Um, that was Augustine. Uh, I, I don't know what, what I don't I don't know how we would understand aging. I guess the Lord has to set some age. He chose that. I guess that's your peak physical prowess or something like that. I don't know, but that's just speculation. In any case, it's hard to fit in infants and young children in the eternal state. But on the other hand, I don't see any idyllic state like that that there's ever been in redemptive history. It just doesn't fit anywhere else. It just doesn't seem to describe anything. So all you can do then is spiritualize it and say it's just talking about spiritual blessings in the gospel or whatever, which some people do. Uh, or you say, well, there's just so many details here, I just can't spiritualize it away, and you know that leads me toward a millennium. That's where I end up. All right, another passage, example number two, which is problematic, and we'll get to it, why it's problematic in a moment, but uh, example number two is in Isaiah 65, beginning at verse 20, strategically beginning at verse 20. Uh, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. Uh, He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as in the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion eat straw like the ox. Does that sound familiar? It should. Uh, but, uh, the, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now, the key issue here in this passage is this passage, again, mentions infants that are born and children growing up, but it also mentions people dying. You know, if you die at such and such an age, you'd be considered a curse. That would be unusual to die so young. We expect, it seems, the flow of the passage, we expect you to die later than that. You know, like at 150 or 200, something like that. Well, what in the world is this discussing? There's no era in redemptive history in which these conditions obtain. We don't know anything like that at all in Israel's history, certainly not in the restoration from Babylon, nothing we see there today, nothing since the fall. And, you know, before the fall, we don't have any record of infants or anything like that. I mean, there's, there's just, it just doesn't fit anywhere. But right in the middle of the passage, it mentions dying and death. Well, thanks be to God for Revelation 21.4, the eternal state... It says, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So we look forward in the eternal state to an age in which there will be no dying. The only ones dying in the eternal state are those in hell. That's the second death, the eternal death. So this just doesn't fit anywhere. So that uh, tends, in my mind, to point toward a millennium. Those two passages are very difficult to fit into anything else. Uh, You end up spiritualizing it, uh, naming it. We're talking about some kind of spiritual blessing in the gospel or something like that. Or uh, you end up with a millennium. 
All right, and then fifth, the millennium uh, seems to fit God's progressive plan of revealing the sinfulness of man and God's grace is the only answer to that problem. Um, this is more of a big-picture, biblical theology, redemptive history kind of argument, but it seems that there are different eras in which God deals differently with different people. I'm not, I'm not saying that we have to go toward dispensationalism, but to say that, you know, that God deals with people the same all the time, is just, that's just not the case. And, and it seems in every era of redemptive history, God's grace has is, is increased from the previous era, and yet sin just seems to ruin whatever God creates and sets up. And, and so for me, I think the final display of that would be a millennial reign in which Jesus is reigning on earth in an idyllic state in which nature is in some way improved, greatly improved, although I would argue still far short of that liberation from the bondage to decay that Romans 8 talks about. It's a great situation. And, you know, it's just godliness everywhere. Jesus is on earth and all that. And still, after the devil is released at the end of the thousand years, he leads a huge mass of people uh, at the end of Revelation, in the middle of Revelation 20, in rebellion against God, and they have to be destroyed, similar to uh, what happens in Revelation 19. Um, again, a display of human sin. And at that point, who are you going to blame? And you say, well, the devil kind of whips them up, but, but uh, that's only once he's released. The fact is they still have sin nature. They're eagerly r- ready and willing to rebel. So, and, and, in other words, uh, it just points to the grace of God and the eternal state glorification. God's sovereign action and grace is the only, the only salvation there can ever be from sin. All right, all those are uh, answers of why I am, uh, tend toward the millennial position. All right, secondly, why am I an uneasy millennialist? <laughs> You know, why could I tip back if one of you comes and said, Pastor, you forgot about such and such? Like, hey, you're right. And then I'd have to reconvene. We'd have to teach again on it because there's always going to be some passage I miss or something like that. Well, first of all, for me personally at least, there are many difficulties with the understanding details about the millennial life. I just have a hard time picturing what it's going to be like. That doesn't mean it won't happen because I think people of the Old Testament had a hard time picturing what kind of Savior was coming. So God does things that are surprising or difficult for us. But I just have a hard time meshing it together especially when it comes to the resurrection and what it's like for those that are resurrected as they live for that thousand years. Are they in resurrected bodies? If so, where do the children come from? Are there some that are resurrected and then others that don't get resurrection bodies so they can procreate? They're just details that I have a hard time harmonizing, putting together. Um, Number two is similar to what I was just hinting at. It's difficult to understand how the resurrection at the second coming taught in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 and 1 Corinthians 15, 23 can fit into the following millennium, especially, as I just mentioned, with questions about unregenerate children, people, all that kind of thing. Thirdly, the only passage that openly teaches the millennium is in the book of Revelation. And that's a very difficult book to interpret. It's got lots of symbolism. Uh, it's got lots of image, imagery. The flow of the book is difficult to follow. I mean, definitely, you read the book of Acts and you just have a sense of an absolute chronology that you're following because it's written down in consecutive order. Same thing with the Gospels. You're just reading something across and you just can know the flow of history from, you know, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. But in Revelation, it's not so easy. It's difficult. And so uh, also with the images and the symbolism. So uh, for, for millennialists, it would, it would be encouraging if there were parallel passages and other things that mentioned the word millennium or talked about it, etc., clearly. Uh, so it makes you uneasy when there's only one verse that clearly teaches it, um, or one passage. The amillennial system is cleaner and simpler and avo- avoids most of these pitfalls. 
It just has a great deal of difficulty with Revelation 20. I mean, a lot of trouble with it. That's really what pushed me over, is that they just don't do a good job with that passage. And so I, I, don't, I don't buy it. But it is clean. The next thing that happens, the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, the eternal state. That's it. And so you don't have to work out all these difficulties. What they have to do is, you know, interpret the Isaiah passages that I, I described, etc., and they tend to spiritualize them. But there's the difficulties, all right, for them. Um, and one of the passages that seems to be teaching the millennial life, which I, I just mentioned to you, strategically beginning at verse 20, is actually very problematic. Because it introduces the topic that I said probably very much describes the millennial life with the words new heaven and new earth. Well, that's problematic, isn't it? Well, this is how the whole thing reads, Isaiah 65, 17 and following. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Well, we're excited about that. That's what I call the eternal state, right? I mean, that's how Revelation describes it, the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Second Peter talks about. That's the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, right? Well, continue reading. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. That all sounds like the new heaven, new earth to me. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies... Uh-oh. I thought we were talking about the eternal state. You see the problem? So what do they do with it? They kind of draw a dotted line somewhere in there and say, okay, that's the eternal state. But suddenly, as a picture of it, though, but not quite there, we have the millennial reign. That's about the best they can do. Hence the difficulties. So you're saying, Pastor, why are you confusing us? Well, you, this is the millennium. This is what we're teaching on tonight, okay? This is where this is the difficulty we're in. So there it is. All right, let's do a little review uh, from the very first time we met. And that is three basic approaches to millennium. Some would say four. This is a good book, by the way, if you want to get an overview of, I think, a faithful overview of, of some good scholars uh, presenting a good case for each of the, what they say, four views of the millennium. What they did is they took premillennialism and divided it into two categories. All right, so you have four views here. There are three basic views. Some have argued there's really only two because uh, they think that post-millennialism and amillennialism are really the same. They're just flavors of the same thing, but that's overly confusing. I go with three. They've got four. Okay, what are they? Amillennialism, historic premillennialism, dis dispensational premillennialism, and then post-millennialism. These are the four views. So this book, The Meaning of the Millennium by Robert uh, uh, Klaus, I guess, uh, each of those four guys gets a chance to present their case in like 20, 25 pages, and then each of the other three respond to what they wrote. So it's a, a, a printed debate, and you can read about it. And that, hence, when you read books like that, that's where you end up like me, confused and thinking everything sounds good, and whatever you read, that sounds about right, and et cetera. But get a book like this, and it'll give you a sense of the balance of the view. By the way, this is one of those views that you, or the, one of those doctrines you don't have to resolve in order to go about your business as a Christian. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to resolve it in order to have a local church. Okay, you have to resolve infant baptism, whether you can have a local church. There are other controversial issues you've got to figure out. But you don't have to figure this one out. We can just uh, have interesting discussions, but don't spend too long on it. Let's be about the business of advancing the kingdom as you look forward to the day of Christ and speed its coming. Second uh, Peter. All right, what are the views? Premillennialism. Well, I already mentioned it. There will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Christ's second coming will occur pre or before the thousand-year reign. That's where the title comes from, premillennialism. 
<clears throat> just mentioned two types of premillennialism, historic and dispensational. Most significant difference between them, the dispensational premillennialists uh, posit a uh, radical separation between the church and Israel, uh, a varying radicality depending on who's espousing the view. The millennium is focused on the fulfillment of literal promises made to the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jews. So there's a real focus on the Jews, uh, per se. Corollary, corollary of this is that the dispensational premillennial folks seek an abundance of details in Old Testament passages, especially in the prophets, for a description of life in the millennium. So I had a Ryrie study Bible, and you're always seeing references to the millennium as you're reading through um, Isaiah in the, in the notes. So this is the millennial kingdom, that's the millennial kingdom. You see it in Psalm 72, you see it in Zechariah, they just find it everywhere. By the way, I think that's a problem, Okay. Because what ends up happening is, once you kind of embrace that mentality, it's always the millennium and never the eternal state. And so heaven itself seems to shrink in significance and the millennium seems to get more and more important. But the millennium is finite. I mean, by definition, it's only going to last for a thousand years. The eternal state is where we should really be focusing. Randy Alcorn may go a little too far in his book on heaven when he, he hardly mentions the millennium at all. As a matter of fact, just kind of dismisses it in, a, in the preface and then all of it is new heaven and new earth. But uh, there's the difficulty, is that many of the things that are used to describe life in the millennium really could be describing life in the new heaven and new earth. Uh, the richness of our life with Jesus living with us in a, in a perfected Jerusalem that descended from heaven, beautifully dressed like a bride, and, and, and there's this beautiful unity, heaven and earth, and God's throne and the river of life, and all of that. It's a physical life. We're going to be in resurrection bodies and all of that. Therefore, if you find Old Testament passages that talk about a rich, full life on earth, why isn't that the eternal state? It might be. So to necessarily find the millennium in all those, I, I, don't, I don't know how you can do that. It might be talking about heaven, frankly. So those are just some questions I would have about that. General description from um, Elwell's uh, Dictionary of Theology on premillennialism gives us this. The premillennialist believes that the return of Christ will be preceded by signs including wars, famines, earthquakes, the preaching of the gospel to all nations, a great apostasy, the appearance of Antichrist, and the great tribulation. The events culminate in the second coming, which will result in a period of peace and righteousness when Christ and his saints control the world. This rule is established suddenly through supernatural methods rather than gradually over a long period of time by means of the conversion of individuals. Uh, the Jews will figure uh, prominently in the future age because the premillennialist believes uh, that they will be converted in large numbers and will again have a prominent place in God's work. Nature will have the curse removed from it and even the desert will produce abundant crops. Christ will restrain evil during this age by the use of authoritarian power. Uh, despite the idyllic conditions of this golden age, there is a final rebellion of wicked people against Christ and his saints. This exposure of evil is crushed by God. The non-Christian dead are resurrected. The last judgment uh, <clears throat> is conducted. And the eternal states of heaven and hell are established. So that's a summary of what the premillennialist believes. All right, then amillennialism, the second, it states that the Bible does not predict a period of the rule of Christ on the earth before the last judgment. <clears throat> According to this outlook, there will be a continuous development of good and evil in the world until the second coming of Christ, when the dead shall be raised and the judgment conducted. Amillennialists believe that the kingdom of God is now present in the world as the victorious Christ rules his church through the word and the spirit. They feel that the future glorious and perfect kingdom refers to the new earth and life in heaven. Thus, Revelation 20 is a description of the souls of dead believers reigning with Christ in heaven. Amillennialism. 
thirdly, postmillennialism, which I will not mention again after this paragraph. Um, postmillennialists emphasize the uh, present aspects of God's kingdom, which uh, will reach fruition in the future. They believe that the millennium will come through Christian preaching and teaching. Such activity will result in a more godly, peaceful, and prosperous world. The new age will not uh, be essentially different from the present. It will come about as more and more people are converted to Christ. Evil will not be totally eliminated during the millennium, but will be reduced to a minimum as the moral and spiritual influence of Christians is increased. During the new age, the uh, church will assume greater importance and many economic, social, and educational problems can be solved. This period is not necessarily limited to a thousand years because the number can be used symbolically. The millennium closes with the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the last judgment. In, in many ways, very similar to amillennialism. Um, but uh, for that reason, if I'm going to head in that direction, I would embrace more of an amillennial system because I think the postmillennialism uh, has an optimism that I don't find in the scripture. I think that actually um, there's many verses that teach that things will get worse and worse uh, before the coming of Christ. So I don't hold that view. All right, now, when we come to the millennium, I must say the key passage is Revelation 21 through 10. All right, um, at the bottom on the, uh, page 5, all commentators agree there is no explicit mention of the millennial reign of Christ on earth anywhere else in Scripture. Now, for the premillennialists, that's not that big a deal. All you need is one. There are actually a number of passages that are only, only, uh, only teach something once, and, and frankly, in the book of Revelation, they're just things that we know about the new heaven and new earth. Nowhere else in the Bible except from the latter stages of the book of Revelation. We accept that, and that's fine. Um, but at any rate, it is significant to note that. Uh, millennialists make much of this. Premillennialists downplay it, saying the millennium is described in other places in Scripture without being explicitly mentioned. Okay? So let's read the verses. Revelation 21 through 10. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's one through six, and that's, that's it. That's the uh, millennium described. I'm going to keep reading, though, because there's more information about the end of that period there, beginning at verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surrounded, sorry, marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
So that's it. I mean, that's the key passage on the millennium, uh, Revelation 21 through 10. Well, let's get context here, first of all. We're not going to go back, but if you had your Bibles, you could look back in Revelation 19 um, and see what happens. Revelation 19 uh, through 22, I think, uh, seem to be chronological. So as we try to understand the context, Revelation 19 speaks of the second coming of Christ. Uh, Heaven is standing open, and there is the rider on the horse. His name is Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war, and he's coming. Uh, He he descends um, in 1 Thessalonians 4. So he's coming. That's the second coming of Christ. So Christ returns to the earth in glory to destroy his enemies. The beast, Antichrist, and the false prophet are condemned and thrown uh, into the lake of fire. Uh, But Satan is not at that moment, condemned and thrown in the lake of fire. That doesn't come until Revelation 20, verse 10. So uh, that's what happens at the end of Revelation 19. Then in Revelation 20, 1 through 6, as we've just seen, the millennium is described, the binding of Satan, the resurrection of the saints, and their rule with Christ. Those are the two essential features of the millennium described in Revelation 20. Satan is bound, saints are resurrected and reign with Christ for a thousand years. That's basically what is going on in those six verses. Okay, Revelation 27 through 10 is the loosing or the releasing of Satan from that prison and the final rebellion, uh, more, more warfare, marching across the breadth of the earth and um, you know, after the millennium and the final judgment, sorry, the, the um, pouring out of the fire of God on them, um, destroying them. And then in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, what's generally known as the great white throne judgment and uh, all the dead, great and small, gathered before him and... and uh, uh, books are open, another book is open, the book of life, and the dead are judged uh, by what's recorded in the book. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. That's Revelation 20, um, 11 through 15. So that's the final judgment. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, you get the eternal state, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem descending, uh, the size and the scope and the beauty of it described, the glory of it described. Uh, Revelation 22, the uh, water of the river of life flowing clear as crystal down the center of the, of the city and on both sides of the uh, uh, river are the tree of life and it's bearing 12 crops for the nations and the gates are standing open and, and uh, wealth of the nations coming in and out and that's Revelation 22. And then various uh, warnings and encouragements to us who live in this age to repent and come to Christ while it's still time so that we can live with him forever. That's how the book ends. To me, that seems very plainly to be talking about a chronological unfolding. You could even go before 19 and talk about the throwing down of Babylon and all that kind of thing and everything that precedes that to a point, as I'll discuss in just a moment, I guess right now. So the chronological unfolding of future history makes the most of these passages. It is not ironclad, however. Okay, why do I say that? Well, other sections of Revelation do not follow such a chronological order. Probably the plainest example is Revelation 11, which talks about the two witnesses... Um, and uh, they are standing there in, in Jerusalem as, you know, where the Lord was crucified. It says where their Lord died. So they're there in Jerusalem doing their incredible uh, witness. Remember, and if anyone tried to oppose them, fire came out of their mouths and burned up their enemies. So those guys are powerful evangelists. I mean, fire-breathing evangelists. And nobody could mess with them. They didn't get persecuted much, at least for those first three and a half years, as they're given time. Uh, but then finally the beast overcomes them and kills them, and their bodies are there for three and a half days, as I remember. And then breath comes into them, and they're resurrected, and then they go up to heaven. So that's Revelation 11. But then in Revelation 12, it talks about this woman in labor, and she gives birth to a male child who will uh, rule over the nations and rule them with an iron rod. This can be nothing other than Jesus. Who else could it be? Well, that's not chronological order. 
So the event in chapter 12 does not happen after the events of chapter 11. So I'm just saying you just have to be careful with, with the book of Revelation. It would be nice if all the events just laid out in chronological order, but they don't. Nobody says they do. I'm not saying that, that uh, dispensational premillennials or others had never noticed that before. They just say it's a difficult book. We all do. But I'm just saying it's just not ironclad that the events of chapter 20 are going to follow the events of chapter 19, that's all. But it is, a, I think, a very strong case for it as it just unfolds. All right, well, let's look uh, more carefully at, at verses 1 through 6 of Revelation 20, the millennium itself. It begins with an angel coming down from heaven. The angel comes out of heaven. He's got the key uh, to the abyss, and he holds in his hand a great chain. If you read through the whole book of Revelation, angels coming down and affecting a certain change or bringing about a certain uh, impact happen frequently. Uh, this is not the first time that, that that happens. And this time, it's an angel with a key to the abyss, and he's got a, uh, a great chain. Satan is seized and bound and locked up for a thousand years. Look at verses 2 and 3. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years are ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. So here's the binding of Satan by this angel. Um, the binding is effective. It apparently prevents all movement by the devil. Um, he's in prison, it's, it says in, in verse 7. He's released from that prison in verse 7, so he's locked up. Um, it at least clearly prevents his deceiving the nations anymore, so he's in some way hindered in that way. That's a key idea for the amillennialist. But uh, for me, as a premillennialist, I look at that and say, well, he's pretty much restrained. He's in prison, not going anywhere. By the way, I do link this also with um, uh, the... Uh, Demons, it seems, who didn't keep their uh, former state mentioned in Second to Peter and Jude, and who are thrown into Tartarus or a pit uh, to be held for final judgment. It says so. There's a similar place. It seems to be a place where demons are unable to move around or do anything. It's it's basically prison for demons where they're they're shut up and they can't go anywhere. So the th same thing is mentioned in Second Peter and also Jude. All right. So thrown into the bottomless pit. The Greek word abyssos means having no bottom. Um, so the words uh, locked and sealed over him imply completely effective incarceration. The reason given is that he can be prevented from deceiving the nations anymore. So the idea is he has been deceiving the nations up until this binding. Now suddenly, once the binding happens, he can't do it anymore, not for a thousand years. Uh, that's what's going on. However, as we've noted, Satan's history is not over. He's not finished at that point. He's finished when he's thrown in the lake of fire in verse 10. Not at this point. So he's just temporarily locked up. Um, so, and then after that, he is released uh, for a short time. All right, next in Revelation 20 comes uh, the first resurrection. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. I saw thrones on which were seated those who have been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This is really the key issue, especially verses 4 and 5. What do you do with the resurrection here? Uh, this really separates the amillennialist from the millennialist right at this very, very point. All right? Now, it's not explicitly stated this scene is set on earth. All right? It doesn't say that. They don't reign on earth. 
That would help to settle it, but doesn't say that. Hence the amillennialist view that they're reigning with Christ in heaven. I mean, we already saw in Revelation 4 thrones up there in heaven surrounding the throne of God, and so it's not necessarily the case that they're going to reign with these thrones on earth. Uh, however, we need to understand, if you're going to take a chronological view of Revelation 19.20, where is Jesus? He's come down to earth. That's where he's come. If you look at First Thessalonians 4, he's coming down. What's he coming down for? To claim the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's time for Satan and all the enemies of God to be dealt with. And so he's coming down and he, he put his, his feet, Zechariah, he put his feet on, the, on Mount, o Mount Olives, Mount of Olives. That's where he came. So that's where he is. So if these saints are going to reign with him, that's where he is. And so there is an indication that they're on the earth. Okay, that's, that's what he's doing. And so we're going to be like Henry Blackaby. We're going to find out where he's active and get involved. Well, this is where he's active. He's on the earth. And he's, we're going to get involved with um, Jesus because that's where he is. Uh, the saints reigning on earth with Christ is the most natural understanding of the passage in context. Now, the key idea here is this idea of the resurrection. Amillennialists say this is referring to the spiritual resurrection that happens when the saints come to faith in Christ. That's the first resurrection. It is actually not a bad interpretation. Okay? Why do we say that? Well, Ephesians 2 and John 5 both speak of that kind of a spiritual resurrection. If you're a Christian tonight, that's happened to you. You have been raised spiritually from deadness to life in Christ. That's happened to you. That's not a bad thing. It's actually a wonderful thing. And as a matter of fact, if it doesn't happen, you're not born again. And so it says um, in Ephesians uh, 2... Uh, it talks about all of us were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when the, the devil um, you know, led us, who is the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, it says, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. That's dead while you live. That is the condition of all of the non-Christians in your life. They may be physically active. They may be going place to place. They may be uh, ladder climbing. They may be career-minded. They might seem successful. They might not. Any of those things, if they're not Christians, they're dead in their transgressions and sins. Jesus said to one man, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. All right? So spiritually dead while they live. But because of his great love for us, somebody said this, the greatest but in the entire uh, Bible, but God. Someone, some preach a whole sermon on but God. The NIV separates those two words. I love that, but God. You know, God stepped in powerfully with the gospel and he raised you from the dead. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Is there anything wrong with calling that a resurrection? Well, generally, no. But in Revelation 20, I think there is. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Because context helps us there. But this is, in some sense, a resurrection. All right? Because we were dead and now we're alive. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Boy, that, that just feeds the amillennial view, doesn't it? There they are reigning with Christ, up in, with thrones, and they're, they're up there, etc. So it's not a bad way to look at the verse, you would think. Um, and then John 5 teaches similar things. John 5, 24 and following. It says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has, what does it say, crossed over from death to life. We used to live in death. Now we're in life. Um, you have eternal life now if you're a Christian. And, and, and you can never die. 
that, that eternal life that God gave you will survive everything that happens to you from here on into eternity. You'll survive it all. You'll survive the rest of your life here in this, this God-cursed earth, you know, surrounded by, by the world of flesh and the devil assaulting you all the time. You'll survive it. Your eternal life will survive all of that. You'll survive Judgment Day. If there is a millennium, you'll go right through that one. You'll survive that. You'll get through the great white throne. You'll get through it all, and you will live forever and ever with God. That's eternal life. That's what he's given. You're alive, and you can never die. So we praise God for that. So he crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, the time is coming and has now come. That's an important statement. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given authority to judge, given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, I think Jesus is talking about the same thing in Ephesians 2 in the first half. All right. In other words, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. He is their good shepherd. They hear the gospel and they live. They cross over from death to life. But then he tells us something more. He says the time is coming. Don't be amazed at this. Time is coming when those who are in their graves. Now that's pretty specific. Those are dead people. All right? Will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. That's the general resurrection to heaven or hell. All right, that's, that's a different thing. And, and Jesus doesn't say that time is coming and has now come. It hasn't come yet. And so those are different things. And all of that's valid uh, spiritual experience and a future physical experience. All that's coming. But is that what's going on in Revelation 20? Now, that's the question. That's the question. The, the same word came to life is used twice in Revelation 20. Okay? It says in Revelation 20, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. It's the same word. Now, what I'm saying is, is it the same thing? If you're talking about a spiritual resurrection in the first case, why are you shifting to talk about a physical resurrection in the second case? There's nothing like that in John 5 or in Ephesians 2. This is talking about resurrection. This is talking about, I think, the second part of John 5, when, when, when dead hear and come out in bodies. That's what we generally think of as a resurrection. Henry Alford put it this way. If in a passage where two resurrections are mentioned, where certain souls lived or came to life at the first, and the rest of the dead lived or came to life only at the end of the specified uh, period after the first, if in such a passage the first resurrection may be understood to mean spiritual rising with Christ, while the second means literal rising physically from the grave, then there is an end of all significance in language. Well, that sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I hope that language is significant. I spend most of my life working on it. All right? Language has to have some meaning. That's what he's saying here. It just, at that point, we, we, it's such a slippery slope, we don't have any idea what words mean. In one passage, they mean, it means a, a spiritual resurrection, and, and very uh, few verses later, a few words later, it's meaning a bodily resurrection from the dead. It, it just doesn't line up. There's an end to all significance in language, and Scripture is wiped out as a definite testimony to anything. The best way, then, to interpret this is bodily resurrection from the grave in both cases. First, by the saints. They're coming up out of the grave to be with Jesus. And the second is that general resurrection, speaking of the resurrection of the wicked uh, when they get their bodies um, uh, physically. Now, note what is said about those taking part in the first resurrection. This is where it gets interesting. 
as though we needed it more interesting. But it is interesting. I mean, it's endlessly interesting. But look at what it says. All right, first of all, uh, it says that they were beheaded during the reign of Antichrist for their testimony to Christ. Uh, they didn't receive the mark of the beast. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They're blessed and holy. The second death, hell, has no power over them. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Then it says the rest of the dead are raised after the thousand years. Now, it is not clear from this passage alone whether good people will be raised in that second resurrection. They might be. Okay? Nothing bad is said about the second resurrection. Something very good is said about the first resurrection. See the difference? Blessed and holy are those who take part in the first resurrection. In other words, if you're going to take part in the first resurrection, you're blessed and holy. It doesn't mean you're not blessed and holy if you take part in the second resurrection. That's a logical error. But uh, blessed and holy are you if you do take part in the first. So it is possible that some godly people would be resurrected in the second. The argument then would be that the only ones that are resurrected this first time are a certain select group of the saints, namely those that were beheaded during the reign of the Antichrist. Those specific ones are, are resurrected. And they're given the honor of reigning with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of them stay up in heaven, disembodied spirits, waiting for the final resurrection, etc. That's one interpretation of it. Um, the specificity of the manner of death beheaded and the focus of the mark of the beast and all that leads us to wonder if these are the only ones that are resurrected at that point. If that's all you have, then that actually is the natural sense of the verse, that these are the only ones getting resurrected. The problem are the other verses that talk about the resurrection. Like 1 Thessalonians 4, for example. It says there, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left to the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's not just some dead, that's the dead in Christ. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, when all you have is 1 Thessalonians 4, and that's what you read, it seems that all, all of us meet the Lord in the, in the air, but the dead precede, they get resurrected, they rise. Isn't that what it says? They will rise first. So they're rising up, meeting the Lord in the air, and then those that are still alive meet the Lord. And what's he doing? Well, this is the second coming of Christ. He's coming back down, and that's when they meet. So that's... <laughs> Everybody gets resurrected at the same time there. 1 Corinthians 15 seems to say the same thing. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 24 says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. All right? Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So there seem to be three phases here in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? Phase one is Christ's own resurrection from the dead. After that, when he comes, that seems to be the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of all believers. Then, phase three, Christ finally crushing his adversaries. Some actually argue that this is a kind of a... Uh, well, this fits in well to the millennial scheme. That you have the first resurrection and then a long period of time that we've known as the church age. 2,000 years it's lasted now. And then the second phase, the general resurrection at the second coming of Christ. And then perhaps another long period of time and then he crushes his final enemy. And what's his final enemy? Death. That's when it all ends after the millennium. I think that actually fits in pretty well. Uh, but again, when does the resurrection happen? When he comes. Everybody gets it at the same time there. 
So then when you go back to Revelation 20, and it seems the only ones that are getting resurrected are those who are beheaded during the reign of Antichrist, um, it doesn't seem right. It could be that those are among those that are resurrected, etc. The best way we put that together is that all of them are raised at the second coming of Christ. Putting it all together, every believer will be resurrected then and will reign with Christ then, despite the specificity of Revelation 24 through 6. Let me tell you, others disagree. I'd be happy to tell you that. All right? I, if, if we're going to do an easy passage, we would have done it. We've done easy passages at other times. I'm looking forward to the next easy passage. This isn't one of them. All right, this is Revelation 20. <laughs> this is not an easy passage. But this is what it seems to be saying, the uh, first resurrection. Okay, what happens after that? Well, we've already been through the, the teaching on the, on the millennium in Revelation 20. Remember, there are two basic stages. The binding of Satan so he can't deceive the nations and the reigning of Christ with a group of people that have been resurrected, blessed and holy ones that are going to reign with him for a thousand years. That's the description of the millennium in Revelation 20. All right? After that, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations uh, in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, Satan is released to deceive the nations once more. He is effective in stirring up a final rebellion against Christ, an incredible display of human sinfulness, and that these folks have been living in the world's only perfect government, a government that's been going on for a thousand years at this point. They're destroyed by fire from heaven. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. Now, an amillennial view of Revelation 20 said this is just describing the second coming of Christ. These are the same things that happened in the, the first description of it in Revelation 19, and this is just kind of a recap is all it is. As the devil you know, deceives the nations, he's bound in some sense by Christ and his first coming, and, and the elector uh, continue to get saved, and, and Christ um, advances his kingdom. But then at the end, the final kind of phase of history, he, he um, causes a lot of trouble. Uh, he's released at the end of that thousand years, so to speak, of prosperity of the gospel and there's a great apostasy and a lot of turning away and all of these wicked people are gathered together and come on the city of God, uh, Jerusalem, to war against them. That sounds an awful lot like a recap of what happened in Revelation 19 with the, with the Antichrist. The only difference is there's, there's no second coming mentioned here, just fire coming down from heaven. Um, so I don't think that it is a recap. So again, very little said about what life is like in the millennium. I mean, almost nothing except that these resurrected ones are reigning with Christ. Uh, there's really very little, I mean, almost no description of millennial life. You're left with this. That's it. Satan bound, doesn't deceive the nations, and some resurrected people reign with Christ as priests and kind of kings with him for a thousand years. And then after that, Satan is released. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the schemes of interpretation and some of the things, the problems that I have uh, with them and why I tend toward what, what's generally known as historic premillennialism. First of all, in dispensational premillennialism, there are a number of strengths uh, godly brothers, sisters in Christ, people that I, I love, uh, embrace this system. Um, and it is a, a faithful and creative uh, and intelligent system. And there's nothing, I don't look on it as a, as a uh, bad thing, but I do have some issues with it I'll describe in a minute. So there are certain strengths. For example, faithfulness to the inspiration authority of Scripture. I mean, you generally don't hold this view unless you're an inerrantist. <laughs> what would the point be? I mean, you're looking at minute details in Old Testament prophecies and all that. That's something an inerrantist does. Uh, somebody who believes that every word is inspired of God. And so that's a strength, obviously. Strong in the faith to believe whatever the Lord has promised. It doesn't matter how difficult it might be. They embrace it. They hold it. 
They think God can do anything, and he will do this. So they'll look at a certain passage of Scripture that they interpret as relating to the millennial life, and they believe it. They just believe that God's going to do it, literally like he said. Um, they're attentive to details, as I mentioned, and everything uh, else that's in common with historic premillennialism is the strength of the system. You know, all of the reasons why I believe in, in the millennial reign of Christ. Those are all strengths. But what are the differences between historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism? Well, uh, aside from the whole dispensational scheme of breaking history up into dispensations and whatever, to me the biggest problem is the breaking apart of the people of God into two very distinct categories, the church and Israel, or the Jews, the biological descendants of Abraham. That's a significant issue. Some dispensational premillennialists are stronger on that division than others. But uh, the focus then in the millennial life would be on the Jews. All right? And the Old Testament prophecies that are so steeped in Jewish language and so steeped in the Old Covenant system and so steeped in, in that whole way of thinking, of course, what else could they be? Because they were Old Covenant Jews that were writing these prophecies. Um, and then the dispensational premillennialists are looking for literal fulfillments. It's very much a Jewish kingdom and very much a Jewish scheme, uh, etc., the problem with that is that Ephesians and a number of other passages uh, seem to say that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down, uh, that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, um, etc. So Ephesians 2 says, He himself is our peace, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death host their hostility. Well, let me tell you something. Dispensational premillennials love that passage and believe in it too. They don't see any problem with, with having a kind of a functional separation um, while saying at the same time that they're one in Christ. Um, so, I mean, that's the way they would answer that. Uh, I think Romans 11 uh, speaks of one olive tree representing, I think, the people of God as descended from Abraham. We're all sons of Abraham, it says in Galatians. All of you are sons of Abraham. But uh, you have this olive tree image, uh, Romans 11. It says, and, and if they, namely the Jews, do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you, namely Gentile believers, were cut out uh, of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, namely, I think, Abraham's lineage there, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, namely the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? There's just one tree. There's just one work that God is doing here. A work of salvation. Again, I think they would answer saying, oh, that's all true in salvation. We're all accepted, but there may still be different roles and functions that they play in, in redemptive history. Okay. Uh, number two, overall literal hermeneutic of Old Testament prophecy focused on the separation of Jews and Gentiles is a problem as well. A number of New Testament passages pick up Old Testament prophecies that seem to be relating only to the Jews, and they apply them to both Jews and Gentiles together. The apostles do this all the time. Like uh, Hosea. Hosea says, I'll call them my people who are not my people, and I'll call her my loved one who is not my loved one. This is, you know, that whole story of Hosea where he's told to marry a prostitute and, and all of that kind of thing. And, and it's just a picture of Israel and its apostasy away from their true husband, God, Yahweh, and God's going to bring them back and speak tenderly and woo them back in. If you're a Jew reading that in the Old Covenant, you're thinking, this is God and Israel. But then Paul takes this passage from Hosea and applies it to the elect, to the people of God, whether they're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. Everybody's not his people. That's the whole point. God's bound all men over to disobedience so that he can have mercy on them all. There's nobody who's his people. In one sense they are, but in another sense all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and everybody's got to be brought in through repentance and faith and mercy. That's the point he makes. So he quotes this. He says, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us... 
whom he also called. That us is Jew and Gentile, as he says. Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, oh my goodness, you should gasp. But you won't gasp because you guys are Gentiles, like me. Right, but the Jews are like, you're actually ascribing the Hosea verse to a bunch of Gentiles? But that's what he does. I'll call them my people who are not my people. I'll call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So that's powerful. That's uh, Old Testament prophecy ascribed to both Jews and Gentiles, to the believers in Christ. Now a word about Ezekiel's temple. Okay, this is the last I'm going to mention. Maybe I'll mention it next week. We're almost out of time. Ezekiel's temple. Uh, the dispensational premillennialists would have a temple in the millennial kingdom. Now, this is not a temple built during the reign of Antichrist, which I said could happen but be cursed by God. Now, this is a different matter. This is a temple built while Jesus is ruling over the earth. Clearly a temple that he embraces and is glad about. What's the problem? Well, you have to read the nine chapters of Ezekiel 40 through 48 to find the problem. It's got nothing but blood sacrifices, animal sacrifices all the way through it. It's a Levitical blood sacrifice temple to offer up those old covenant sacrifices in the millennial reign, no less. How in the world do you figure that out? Well, they say it's a memorial looking back at Jesus' death. Well, I, there, there is a book of the Bible that addresses that, I think. It's called the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews says very plainly that whole animal sacrificial system is obsolete and aging and will soon disappear. God will sovereignly make it disappear. He will never accept it again. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. He's put an end to it once for all time. He uses that kind of language again and again in the book of Hebrews. It's finished. Um, so, the temple of Ezekiel uh, 40 through 48 is a problem. It's a problem for everybody, friends. <laughs> Everybody's, even, even those that think it's going to be literally built in the millennial reign have a problem with the whole book of Hebrews. Those of us that say that can never happen then are left with, and what is it talking about? Because it certainly wasn't Zerubbabel's temple, you know, the temple of Haggai, which was a little structure. It can't be Herod's temple. What is it? Uh, I don't know. I'm not teaching on Ezekiel tonight. So anyway, it's, but it's not, I'm telling you, I, I just say this with all the certainty I can when it comes to the millennium. It is not a millennial temple. So those are different problems I have with that. All right. Strengths and weaknesses of amillennialism. Well, what do you know? It's 730. Um, <laughs> I, I only say that. I'm not afraid to go through this. Um, I'm really not, not afraid. I ain't scared. Um, but I think at 7.30, this is a good stopping point. So next, next time, I'll tell you what we'll do next time. We'll talk about why I was attracted to amillennialism for so long, why it's still appealing to me, but with the problems I have with it. And then I'm going to talk about the millennium versus the eternal state, similarities and differences, things that I find that are similar between the both of them and things that are different. And then I'm going to raise up some questions I have just with millennialism in general. I've already alluded to them, but even embracing millennialism doesn't end my problems. It actually starts bringing many of them on because at that point I have to try to imagine certain things and try to figure it out as best I can. Actually, you can say, no, you don't. Just let it happen. But at any rate, as a teacher of the Word of God, I try to find out as best I can how to harmonize scriptures that seem to teach these things. So it leaves me with certain problems. And then I'm going to do my best to do what Revelation 20, verse 1 through 6, does not do. And that is describe life in the millennium. What, what will it actually be like? And uh, with uh, fear and trembling, I'll go into the Old Testament and find some of those verses and describe them and, th and say, I think this may be talking about life in the millennium. Either way, it may be talking about life, in either that or the eternal state. So we get, we get it either way. 
Um, I, for me, I think it'd be even better in the eternal state. You know why? Because it never ends. So if you're finding deserts blooming and you're finding, you know, lush, you know, beautiful experiences and, and lions lying down with lambs and all that, isn't it better that it would last forever and ever? I think it would be. But uh, the point is not so much is it better. The point is what does the scripture say? So we'll do the best we can to describe the millennial life next time, God willing. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had tonight to begin looking at this uh, deep and rich subject. We thank you for the depths of the scripture. We know that whether the next thing that happens is the millennium or the um, eternal state, we know that you plan good things for us, O Lord, that good things are in in store for us in the future, that you will sustain us until at last we come into our heavenly inheritance, uh, that that inheritance will be rich and full and beautiful and strong. Um, and uh, well worth waiting for. We will in no way be disappointed, but we will be richly blessed. And we will realize when we got there how little we deserved it, how infinitely little we deserved it, and how much it was only by the blood of Jesus that we came into this wealth called our inheritance in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.